studying the book of Romans, and we've been talking about two particular men who really illustrate. And, and I think they're probably two of my favorite characters in the Bible. I've certainly learned more about life and the ministry uh, from their lives. Uh, incredible. But we have been talking about uh, Abraham. We talked about David first, and I showed you how that, that both men, when you want to study their lives, is built around three different aspects. We looked at David as the shepherd, David as the king, and then David as the man after God's own heart. With Abraham, we saw him as Abram, and then God changed his name to Abraham. That's what we're going to look at today. And then the last thing that God really says about him directly is he calls him Abraham, my friend. Uh, and we're going to talk about that in, here in the next couple of weeks. But, you know, I, as I, I, I don't know of any more... Uh, character in the Bible. I was thinking about this this morning as I drove over here. I don't know of any more character in the Bible that probably impacted my life as a young guy more than the study of Abraham. And it's an interesting story. You know, back in 1972, I was in Canton, Ohio there, and I was working uh, under Mel Sabaka uh, as his kind of his associate and, and in charge of all of his music and doing the things and preaching for him when he was out of town and all of that. And God had really been good to me. And uh, back then in 1972, every year we had a, or twice a year we had a, uh, an, uh, we had like a Bible conference or, you know, and we bring in preachers from around the country. It's one of the great things that that church did that is not done anymore because there really isn't anybody any good anymore. But Dr. Harold Hanniger, who was the pastor there, he saw the need to bring in some of the great preachers around the country. And I heard some, in my young life, I heard some incredible men who are long dead and gone now that I look at as the last of the bridge of the old Philadelphian preachers, men who really understood what it meant not only to believe the Bible, but really knew how to preach the Bible. And they formed the mindset for me that, uh, that really shaped my whole scope of ministry. But it was in 1972, in 1972, that they brought in a, a, a pastor who was a, a, a guy that... Uh, uh, was, a, was a great uh, young pastor, and he had really, really just kind of come into his own. And uh, uh, his name was Truman Dollar. And Truman Dollar, they brought him out there to, uh, to uh, preach at the Canton Baptist Temple. And I was just a young guy back then, and he preached a series of messages one night on, on Abraham. And I got to tell you, it was a situation where it... It probably was the single most series of messages that changed my life. I still have the original message that he preached on a Canton Baptist Temple little cassette with their little logo on it dated 72 or 73, forget when it was. And I, I, I would never play it again. I was afraid it would break it, you know, it's so fragile now. But, but I'll tell you what, I, I have the whole series that he did. And I remember as a young man, I was, I was working a secular job, you know, and working in the ministry with Mel, and I remember listening and, and, and taking the notes that he preached about the life of Abraham. Now, his message was a little different than mine. He contrasted the two types of Christians. And his question throughout that sermon, and it was a question that really impacted my life, and he said, are you a lot or are you an Abraham? And what he did, he went through and he contrasted the life of Abraham versus the life of Lot. And uh, we're going to look at some of that when we get into Abraham as the friend of God. But it was from that message, or series of messages, and he preached like three nights on it. Changed my whole perspective about myself. 
changed my, really my direction in life. And I, I, I have preached variants of those sermons for the last 30-some years of my life. And they absolutely, in my own personal mind, they absolutely changed the course of where I was going in life and how I looked at things. And it was from that that I developed my own series as a message about Abraham. And you know, then that's what you do. You hear somebody preach something really well and really good that really impacts you, and you know what you do with it if you're, if you're any kind of preacher at all or you're any kind of Bible student at all. You take it and make it better. I mean, the standard line, the standard line among preachers is when somebody preaches a good message, we say, yeah, I'm going to take that and clean it up and use it, you know. You, you learn from what other people do. And that message was a great series of the message that he preached. But I took them. And I broke them down and I applied them to my own life. I looked at Abraham and the contrast a lot. Uh, but then I took Abraham and I focused on his life. And from that, from that, in my own studies, and my own way of laying it out, I came up and saw the difference between Abram, Abraham, and then the friend of God. I'm a pretty simplistic guy. I, I don't deal very well with complex things. But God has given me the ability to look at something very complex and understand it in a very simple form. And, of course, the Bible is, is a book like that. And so is the Christian life. And last week we looked at his name as Abram. And I told you, if you remember, that Abram means high father. And we saw how that in, he was very successful in Ur of the Chaldees. That's where Babylon is today, or uh, Iraq is today, Baghdad. He was very successful. And, uh, uh, but God had another plan for him. And God called him out of the Ur of Chaldees to go fulfill that plan. And I told you then that that's exactly, Abraham's life is a picture of what God has for you and for me. As a young preacher sitting back there uh, under the great men that I heard preaching, God was forming up in my life. He was forging the things into my life that was going to give me a direction. He was putting the men and the people and the sermons that I needed to hear. I was taking them and internalizing them and then studying them and then putting it back out, and it was from that, that that God was molding me as He wants to mold you. Because, you know, I, when we look at him as Abram, we see his struggles as he goes through it. We see him struggling to believe God. We see him struggling to trust God. We see a picture of our own early years of our Christian lives, the formidable years that I told you about when we first started, that you're, you're so vulnerable in as a Christian. And he represents what we all go through. And that's why I think it's such a marvelous study. He represents the, the ups and the downs of your life when you, when you first plug into God or maybe you first get saved. And all through your life and my life, there's going to be struggles. I don't know of a day in your life that you'll be able to say that I, I don't have something i got to deal with today. But the Bible in a relationship with God takes you above the physical circumstances, whatever they may be, and allows you to live in this world, but walking on top of the world, not down through the middle of it. You, in other words, you live above the circumstances based on the principles of the Word of God. I told you last week about Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, a great verse in the Bible that says that God hath begun a good work in you. The day you got saved, God began a work in your life. And He wants to perform that work unto the day of Jesus Christ. The day of Jesus Christ is the rapture of the church, if you know that in the Bible. Now, since what we've come through, you should have a good grasp on the three aspects. God's will for your life. You should know what that is now. 
You got to have that in your Bible. God's plan for your life. You know it's not the same now as God's will for your life. You ought to have that detailed out in your Bible. And then, of course, last week we talked about God's work. The difference between God's plan for your life, God's will for your life, and God's work for your life. And how it all kind of goes together. And you should have a pretty good grasp on that right now. You've heard me say this many, many times. And to me, <clears throat> this is basic Bible 101. You've heard me say many, many times that God moves, God moves in a direction to do something in your life, and then the devil moves, uh, the devil's plan is to, is to move in opposition to shut that down. There's no greater evidence of that in the Bible than in the life of Abraham. Almost at every turn of his life, once God calls him out, once God begins the process of a good work in his life, even though Abraham at this point doesn't have a clue what's going on. The devil is already at work trying to shortcut what God is going to do. And it's the same way in your life and my life. The moment you decide to do what's right with God, the moment you decide to be what God wants you to be, the moment you get to the place in Abraham's life where God calls you out of whatever you're doing and has another plan for you, the moment in your heart you decide that's what you're going to do, you're, you're in trouble. I mean, you're in trouble in a good way, but you're in trouble. And uh, you're going you're gonna to see from Genesis chapter 11, where we first find Abram mentioned, up to Genesis chapter 17 in the first five verses. His name is Abram. And in those chapters, it shows us not only his struggle, but our struggle. It shows the process that God enacts in every Christian's life of a transformation of you and me, from what we were to what God wants us to be. It's a process that we all go through. It's not without its hardships. It's not without its struggles. And it's not without its pitfalls. But if you stay with it and grow through it and learn to trust God as Abraham learned to trust God, the end result is you wind up becoming, as Abraham, God's friend. But in chapter 17, and this is where we're going to focus today, We've already looked at his life as Abram. Today we're going to look at chapter 17. And we're going to look at an incredible study through an incredible example. Something that you need to put in your Bible, mark in your Bible, and lay out in your Bible. And something that you always want to look for in the Bible, and that simply is when God changes a man's name. When God changes a man's name. Now, I'm going to read a couple of passages here. I, I want you to go to Genesis chapter 17, verse 1. I'm going to come there in just a second. But I want to reread for you Romans chapter 4, verse 17, while you're turning to Genesis chapter 17, verse 1. It says in Romans chapter 4, verse 17, As it is written, I have made thee a father of many nations, before him whom he believed, even God, who quickeneth the dead, and calleth those things which be not as though they were. Now, that verse tells us right there that God's plan for Abraham. His name was Abram, which meant high father. His life in the earth of the Chaldees showed us a success story in a man's life, much like yours and mine in this world. But God had another plan for him. And for him to fulfill that plan, God had to change his name. And I want to say this to you this morning on the authority of the Word of God. For God to fulfill the plan in your life that he wants to fulfill. For God to do in your life what He wants to do, you're going to have to go through a similar experience. 
where God is going to change your name. Now, I, when I say that, I don't mean that you're maybe uh, David Zeiser today and come back as, as Joe Smith next week. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about in a, in, a, in, a, in a physical sense in the Old Testament. Yes, he changed Abraham's name. But in a spiritual sense, for you and for me, it means something else. Well, let's, let's look at Genesis chapter 17, verse 1. Let's pray for it. Father... We thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus, and we love you. We thank you for all that you do for us. We ask you now, Father, to give us everything that we need today. Help these men and women to learn and to be part of the great uh, things that you have for us. And, Lord, we'll be careful to give you the honor and the praise and the glory. In Jesus' name, for sake we ask it. Amen. Now, Genesis chapter 17, verse 1. Watch it very carefully. And when Abram was, see his name is Abram. When Abram was 90 years old and 9. He's 99. Now that's a study in itself in the Bible, but we don't have time to get into that. The Lord appeared to Abram and said unto him, I am the Almighty God. Walk before me and be thou perfect. Now, I, I need to tell you this, that remember last time that I showed you that from the last time you find Abram in Genesis chapter 16, to the time that God speaks with him in chapter 17, verse 1, there's 13 years. Abraham had been out of fellowship with God. The plan of God had been on hold. No transformation had taken place in his life. He made a couple of bad choices and it put him out of the game plan for 13 years. Now, the Bible doesn't give us the inside details of what transpired in those particular years. But obviously something happened and Abraham and God uh, began to uh, get back into some direction. And here in chapter 17, verse 1, notice what God tells him. I think this is so instructive of what you don't get in chapter 16 that shows you what must have went on a little bit. And when Abram was 90 years old and 9, the Lord appeared to Abram and said unto him, I am the Almighty God. Walk before me and be thou perfect. Now, that's what Abraham had a problem doing up to this point. He had a problem walking before God. He had a problem believing that God was almighty. You know what almighty means in the Bible? It means all might. It means that God can do anything. Abraham was not convinced of that fact. Oh, he believed God in, in areas that he could but when God was telling him about the promised seed and he was 90, 86 years old and Sarah was way past childbearing, he had a tough time and he struggled with that. But through this 13 years, and I guess, for, I guess the best way to say it, that in Abram's life, 13 years without God was finally enough. I wonder how many years it'll take in your life. Some of you here this morning, bless your heart, I love you and you're, and you're saved and on your way to heaven. But you, 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 you're no closer today than fulfilling God's purpose and plan in your life and the work in your life than the were the day you got saved. Abraham is a perfect picture of what you're, where you're at. There was a time in my life, I was telling somebody this week, the point I got saved, the point I really plugged in was probably 14 or 15 years of my own life. And I look back, and I, and I understand, you know, that time spent waiting on God is never time wasted. I know all of that, and I know that God has His purpose. But my point is this. Abraham missed out on what God had for him for 13 years. Finally, finally, God says to him, you know what? I am the Almighty, and I want you to walk before me, and I want you to be perfect. And then he says in verse 2, And I will make my covenant between me and thee, 
and will multiply thee exceedingly. And Abram fell on his face, and God talked with him, saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with thee, and thou shalt be a father of many nations. Neither shalt thy name, here it comes, this is what you want to mark in your Bible. Neither shalt thy name any more be called Abram, but thy name shall be Abraham, for I have made thee a father of many, na- uh, many nations, have I made thee. And I will make thee exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of thee, and kings shall come out of thee. I will establish my covenant between me and thee, and thy seed after thee in their generations for an everlasting covenant to be a God unto thee and to thy seed after thee. And I will give unto thee and to thy seed after thee the land wherein thou art a stranger, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Now this is a major place in your Bible. And this is a place where you need to mark this in your Bible. And if I were you, uh, in the next little section here, I'm going to talk to you about when God changes the man's name. And I would suggest that right here in Genesis chapter 17, this is where you put all this maybe material to kind of help you put it all together and grasp it. And so it's in one spot. But this is a major place in your Bible. Now, I don't know if you understand it or not, but when God changes a person's name in the Bible... It signifies that that person is moving from one spiritual level to another spiritual level. And I don't know if you know it or not in the Bible, but there's a number of people. There's a number of people that God changes their name. And it's not always for the good. I need to throw that in. I'll give you an example. Back there in Jeremiah chapter 22, verse 28, you got, a, got, a, got one of the kings of Israel. You people in institute... You should know this. We talked about him. Uh, he's one of the key figures that set up the kingdom of heaven and the times of the Gentiles and the destruction of Jerusalem. His name is Jehoiakim. And Jehoiakim, uh, his name means Jehovah will establish. And he was one of the last kings of Israel. But he became such a wicked king. He became such a king that was so against God. He became a king that everything he did, it was for his own self. And he didn't help the problem in the nation of Israel. He magnified the problem in the nation of Israel. Instead of leading the people right and getting them back to the Bible, he led them further into the darkness, further into the ungodliness of Israel. And finally, God got so fed up with him that God gave one of the greatest prophecies in the Bible about him. You know what he said in Jeremiah chapter 22? Here's what he said. God said, I despise that man, Jeconiah, so much. I despise him so much that I'm going to give a prophecy that no man, no man coming from that kingly line and the line that goes all the way back through the kingly line to Abraham, no man from that line will ever sit on the throne of Israel as their king ever again. And that's an incredible prophecy. You know what else he did? He changed his name. He changed his name from Jehoiakim to Kaniah. He changed his name from Jehoiakim. And I said, I gave you another name. There's two different names for him in the Bible. Uh, He changed his name from Jehoiakim, which means Jehovah will establish, to Kaniah. You know what Kaniah means? Despised, broken idol. Here's a man that had a chance to do something for God. His name suggests that Jehovah will establish him. If there ever was a time that God needed to be established in the nation of Israel, it was at this time. And God had his man on the throne, Jehoiakim. 
A man that his name means Jehovah will establish, that God could have, could have brought back the nation of Israel, but Jehoiakim wouldn't do it. And he led the nation of Israel into deeper apostasy, and finally God comes down and not only pronounces the prophecy on his seed, but changes his name to despised, broken idol. You go over into 2 Kings chapter 12. You have another young man over there that's a king. His name is, his name is uh, Jehoash, Jehoash, G-E-H-O-A-S-H, Jehoash, Jehovah uh, in his name. And it may mean fire from Jehovah. And how many times I've seen this work itself out. <clears throat> when you find these names in the Bible and these stories in the Bible, they represent things in our lives. I don't know how many times I've seen a, I've seen a man like Je- Jehoiakim who could have been something great for God, who God could have established a, a, a ministry through his life, but because of his, his not wanting to be what God wanted him to be and stay with the things of this world, he wound up being a despised, broken idol. I don't know how many young men <clears throat> I've seen that I've looked at them and I thought to them the same, your name is Jehoash. Fire from Jehovah. Who when they start out, you're on fire for God. You're really doing what God wants you to do. But if you study his life in 2 Kings, you begin to find out that some things began to go down in his life. God began to go by the wayside. Where the things of God were once important to him, suddenly they weren't important anymore. Other things in his life became to come in and be more important. And the things of God began to go one by one out of his life. It came to the point so bad that by the end that he wants to justify himself so much that he's actually killing God's priests who are pointing their finger at him saying, you need to be the right kind of king. You see, that's the process that always goes. Always goes that way. When you start to get out of fellowship with God, it can't be you. It has to be something else. It has to be the people in this church. It has to be me. It has to be the church. It has to be what we teach. Finally, in Joash's name, Jehoash's name, had Jehovah in it, fire from Jehovah, God finally said, I'm taking my name off of your name, and your name now is Joash. You know what Joash means? Fire. Fire. God says, I don't even want my name associated with him. And God took his name, Jehoash, off and just called him Joash. The J-E-H being for Jehovah. But you see that a lot when God's names are always associated with many of these kings. How many times I've seen a young man or even a young lady that have the ability to be something great for God, to be fire for Jehovah, to be established for God, and yet they throw it all away. They give it up because of a career or because they want to do this or their own personal things that they want to do, that they don't have time for God, that they don't have time to give God what's important in their life. They give God what's left over. You know what God says? He says, how many times I've seen a young man that had the fire for Jehovah just wound up being fire. Now the scary thing about it is that why God just left the name fire, I guarantee you that fire with Jehovah's name off is going to show up at the judgment seat of Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Then you have some good ones. You have a guy like Jacob. You know Jacob means schemer. And when you study Jacob's life, you find a picture of all of us. You find a picture of us, you and me, who when we first come to, with God, we just pull every angle we can. We try to weave and deceive as much as we can. I don't know how many times I've seen kids uh, want to uh, snowball their parents. 
And they'll tell their parents exactly what they want to hear, and then they'll underground and do exactly what they want to do. And it's a thing where that was Jacob. That was you and me. That was me when I was a young man. You know what? That's all of us at some point in our life. One of the greatest studies in the Bible, one of the greatest studies in the Bible is found in Genesis chapter 32. If you would look in my Bible, not this one, but the one I teach on Thursday night, if you would look in my Bible, uh, my study Bible, you would find in big red letters across Genesis chapter 32 that you couldn't miss it. Right across the top, there's a little heading that says, The day God gets you alone. You see, God had something for Jacob to do. And, but Jacob was a schemer. Jacob was in it for himself, not for God. He's like a lot of God's people. They're in the ministry. They're in to go to church for what you can get out of it, for the fun times. You do what you get out of it, what you want, not what God wants. It's, it's many things that God would have you to do would be an inconvenience for you. You're going to do what you want to do, play the game on the outside, walk around, be Mr. Mr. Spiritual, and everybody thinks you're spiritual, and you want to pretend you're spiritual, but in time, it's all about you, what you want. That was Jacob. That was me for a long time. And you know what God did? God got him alone. And boy, the day God gets you alone, he touched the hollow of Jacob's thigh when he wrestled with God over the will of God in his life to do what God wanted to do. And God finally come down. You know what? You can only run so far. And I know it's a physical application. I know it's literal back there. But it stands for a great spiritual picture. Jacob was running from God, literally. And God, God don't have to send the hounds on you. He didn't have to send the dogs after you. He didn't have to call the police. He just reached down and touched the hollow of Jacob's thigh, and he couldn't walk anymore. And then God walked up and said, this is not in the Bible, but I guarantee you, we're not like this. God walked up and said, you ain't running too fast now, are you, Jacob? Are you? You know, when you study his life, it's in great study. You realize that Jacob got the blessings and the birthright from, from, by scheming to get them? You know, he dressed up and pretended he was somebody else to get what he had. Just like what we do sometimes. He, he pretended he was Esau so he could get the blessings. People come to church, they put on their spiritual face on Sunday, and then they put on who they really are when they go home, see? Oh, it's great study. And uh, it's a situation where, but, but God never misses those things. Now, I don't know how this exactly works. But I guarantee you, I am convinced of this. There's an angel that hangs out right next to God. And what he does, he has one job. You say, where's this at in the Bible? Well, I don't know where it's at in the Bible. It ain't even in the Bible. But he's got something going like this because I keep seeing it popping up in the Bible. You know what that angel does? That angel just writes down whatever we say. And then God brings it back around. You know, when he was deceiving Isaac, he was in the deception up to his eyeballs. He dressed up like Esau, he smelled like Esau, and he is up to his eyeballs in the deception. You know what Isaac asked? Isaac says, who are you, my son? And he had to lie and tell him who he was. He deceived to get the blessing. You know, when he finally gets alone with God in Genesis chapter 32, and God touches the hollow of his thigh, and he's there screaming and squalling and kicking all around to the place, and he finally says to God, okay, I'm going to do it. You know the first question God asked him? First question God asked him. He says, what's your name? He asked him the same question Isaac asked him 
But he lied to Isaac. God wanted to see if he was going to tell him who he was. And you know what he had to say? You know what he had to say? You know what he had to say? He said, my name is Jacob. Translation. By who am I? My name is Schemer. And at that point in his life, God says, no longer. Now you're going to be Israel. From that point on, he moved right along with God. I look in Acts chapter 9. Saul who we know as the Apostle Paul. There's a man in the Bible that, that as he goes through there, that uh, when you find him in Acts chapter 9, where God met him on the road uh, going to Damascus, you know what he's doing? He's going to kill Christians. Saul was the unsaved murderer. Saul was the unsaved man who, who persecuted Christians. Saul was the man that had been trained by the Sanhedrin, been trained by the great minds was a doctor of the law and was going to Damascus to persecute God's people when God met him on the road. And when he got saved, you know what God did? First thing God did, God said, oh, by the way, you're no longer Saul the persecutor. You're now Paul the apostle. From that point on, his life was different. Every time you find it in the Bible, every time you find it in the Bible, and here in chapter 17, verses 1 through 8, you find Abram's name from high father being changed to Abraham, the father of many nations. You come on down to verse 15, he changes Sarah's name. Sarai's name meant princess. He changes her name to Sarah, which means I will bless her with many nations or children. And this represents the great turning point in Abram's life. It shows you and I that comes a point in your life and my life through the process of transformation. That when God begins to expose you to His will and you become more like Christ, you put the, you put the will of God in your life. God begins to unfold the plan in your life and then in time God gives you the work that He wants you to do. And it, it's a great turning point in Abraham's life and it shows how you and I move up into the levels of spiritualities in our relationship with God. You ever notice how your life and my life goes? <clears throat> kind of goes like this. There you get saved down here, and then it moves like this. Kind of moves like a spring in circles, going upward. And what you got is this. You start down here, <clears throat> and then you move along this thing, and then you hit a snag. Then you get through that snag, you move up a little higher, and you get another snag. Those snags represent issues in your life you have to deal with. You see, the higher you go up in the spring, the closer you get to God, the more it magnifies what's wrong with you and me. See how it works? Not hard. And, uh, and of course, you, you come up that thing and you hit a snag. That snag's something in your life you've got to deal with. Now, at that point, you have a decision to make. You see it in Abraham's life. You see it in Jacob's life. You see it in everybody's life. When you get saved, you're going to start on a slow journey upward in a spiral, kind of like a plane circling, moving up, moving up, moving up. And at every point of that circle, you're going to find an obstacle. That obstacle may be somebody you got to deal with. It may be something you got to deal with. It may be something in your job. It may be some personal thing you're dealing with in your own personal life. Whatever it is, you go no farther up the line till you deal with that. And you know what? This church is no different, though I believe it is a cut above most churches, but human nature is the same. I guarantee you, right now in this room, 
If we would chart your life out and my life out, we would find uh, that, and we put everybody on that graph and that circle and everybody know the bottom line of where you're at, we'd find all kinds of people. Uh, some of them are moving up, dealing with the obstacles, and you keep going higher and higher. Some of you have moved this thing, and that's where you're staying. You've got something in your life that's more important to you than serving God right now, and that's where you're at. Now, in your mind, you think, well, I'm still moving up the ladder. I'm going to Bible study. I'm doing this and I'm doing that. But in reality, you're not going anywhere. You're like a soldier that is on his way to battle, but he never gets there. You know why? Because he just marks time and place. Oh, we're marching. We're marching to Zion. Beautiful, beautiful Zion. We're marching to Zion. Oh, beautiful city of God. Yeah, but you ain't going anywhere. You're marking time in place. You know why? Because there's something on that line you've got to get over. I don't know what it is. But I know this. As you go through life, you're going to hit these little snags. And until you deal with those and climb over those and get to the next time. And at some point in your life, at some point in your life, through the process of dealing with them, the process of, of not getting your nose bent at a joint and, and saying, you know what, I've got some things in my life I've got to work on. I've got some things in my life I've got to fix. Putting the pride aside and saying, you know what, this is where I'm at and this is what I've got to do. This is what we see in Abraham's life. And his life, as he goes through this thing, you find, you find like so many of God's people, as they move up those things, there comes a point in your life where you break through. You break through. You come up through these things and you get up a little higher and a little higher and a little higher. And I've watched almost every one of you that I work with. I've watched every one of you come up this thing. I may not say anything about it. I may say it to you in terms, not like I'm saying this morning. But, and, 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 and I'm telling you, I'm telling you. And we have a bad idea today about churches. We really do. And it's a bad mindset. And I understand why it's here. I understand, I understand why it is. But the bottom line is this. As you begin to go up that little, that little spiral, and you begin to overcome your struggles, and you begin to break through, God's will in your life begins to take hold in your life. I've seen it to be true in so many of your lives. The building process. God's program is a local church. God's program, whether you like it or not, whether you agree with it or not, God's program, God decided to run everything that he's going to run through a church. And people don't like churches today. You know why? Because churches tell you what to do. Somebody better tell you what to do. When you read the Bible, you know what the Bible does? It tells you what to do. You ever notice the Ten Commandments were not the Ten Suggestions? You ever notice they weren't, well, if you like them, try them? They're commandments. And there's a structure that every child of God needs in their life. And you grow through that structure. How many ever, how many ever um, used a cock gun? You know, you do your sink. I only used it once, my wife. Because I'll tell you guys, if you ever want to get out of doing it the rest of your life, just mess it up the first time. She looked at that job and she says, I will do it myself. That is terrible. You got it over everything. And I said, you know what, honey, you're right. You better do it. <laughs> but you ever look at that tube of cock? First of all, it goes in a gun. See? 
And then you got a little thing in the back that turns it, and then you click the thing, and the thing gets closer and closer and closer. And then the first thing you do is cut the end of it off, by the way. But mine was a lot neater when I didn't cut the end off. Now that cock will get on everything. It's the goofiest stuff you ever saw in your life. It gets in your fingers. It gets on your clothes. Whatever it hardens on, you can't get it off. Cock needs to be in a controlled environment. No, it does. You know what? You know what makes a cock gun work that is so ooky and gooky and so messy and everywhere? You know, when you take that tube and put it in a cock gun, it's now in a structure. And when you squeeze that thing, it forces the cock, which is gooey and ugly and yucky and will mess up your house, out a little end of that tube that you can control it and you can use it and you can do wonderful things with it. Try to take the tube and cut it down the middle and split it open and put it on. No, it needs to be in a structure because it's very icky and yicky and gluey and it needs to be within a confined structure that the force of that structure forces it and conforms it into a workable solution that you can fix open in your house. Well, hello. You know what's wrong with you and me? We're yucky. We're icky. We like water. We get all over everything. You know what you need? We need a structure that shapes us and forms us and puts the right pressure. Oh, did you notice that? I love this analogy. The, right pr- the pressure on a cock gun is in the rear end of the gun tube. <laughs> now, I don't know if that translates in where the church needs the pressure applied, but it'll work for me if it'll work for you. And what you got is through the pressure, it takes something that is totally unworkable by itself and puts it into a format that now you can do great work. And of course, for you and for me, the structure is that church. The way God set it up. That allows you to have boundaries, but make your own decisions within the structure of the Word of God. And I'm telling you, I'm telling you, I've been in, we've had this church now for what, five, almost five and a half years. And uh, the thing that I, it, 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 you don't see this. You can't see this in a year, two years, three years. You don't, you don't really see it in four years, but it's starting to emerge. And it's so true. And it, it brings home to what I'm talking about. And it's simply this. The structure of this church and the way it is set up and the way the Bible is taught and what you have and what you can get works you see i see maybe you don't when we started this church i started a process that anybody wanted to study the bible come in and spend an hour a week with me and work with me in the bible and many of you did that many of you are still doing that but i'm telling you this there is a marked difference in your attitude toward ministry and the things of god and the way you approach things of god for those of you that do that for those of you that don't do that Now, I'm not saying you're a bad person. I'm not saying that God won't use you. I'm saying we all are structuralist people. The Bible, the church, forms a structure. You don't know how to study the Bible on your own. I was discipling Dave this week. Remember, we asked that question, and I explained that, and David said this to me. He looked right at me and said this. Now, how would I have known that reading the Bible myself? Remember that, David? What did I say? Yeah, that's right. What I'm doing. I said, David... You're not supposed to know what it means. You're not supposed to know what it means. The Bible was never written. It was never given. It was never given to man. 
that somebody would just sit down in a log cabin someplace or in the beautiful, you know, Blue Ridge Mountains or in the top of a penthouse in New York City or up in the Rocky Mountains or out on a boat off the West Coast and just open up the Bible and God would come down and show you everything. That's God never intended for the Bible to be learned that way. The, the model's in the Bible. When God opened up the concept of the church, He gave the church gifts. We talked about it a couple of Thursday nights ago, for those of you that bother to come anymore. We talked about it that night. He gave the, he gave the church gifts. The church was a gift. Within that church, pastors, teachers, evangelists, that's your gift. You get those things. And what happens is the model was Paul and Timothy. You took Paul, come to the place where, how did Timothy become Paul's replacement? Did he just get in the Bible and read over there and say, hey, there's my name. I'm going to be the replacement for Paul. No. No, not at all. Paul took him and showed him and worked with him and brought him through the process. He was side by side with Paul. He saw the bad things that Paul had to deal with, the good things. And as he built his relationship with Paul through the Word of God and God through the Bible, and that team worked together within the structure of the church, read it the first time Timothy shows up in the Bible. Go back in the book of Acts and find the first time he shows up in the Bible in what it says. It says that he had a good reputation within that church. The structure's the church. And in that church is everything you need. Young Timothy, and then you take Titus, another pastor. Philemon, another one. God knows how many men Paul must have invested his life with. That he showed them and molded them. Because God never, never, never intended for you just to sit out and open your Bible and read it. And the ones that take advantage of the gift that God has given you, of the pastors and the teachers and the, and, the, and the ministry and the structure of this church are farther along than the ones who just try to figure it out on your own. I don't know what to tell you. I don't know what to tell you. And I'll, I'll tell you this. And, and I'll, I'll, this is another important thing. You might as well learn this. When you grow spiritually, there's going to be people who don't grow spiritually, who aren't going to like the fact that you're growing spiritually and they're not. You do understand that, don't you? People who don't want... Write this down someplace. I'd suggest you put it on your forehead backwards so every time you look in the mirror. People who don't want to change. People who don't want to change. People who grow to a point and then want to stay where they're at. And they look at the ministry working with people as an inconvenience. Oh, I'm in church. I go to church. I got the right Bible. I got the old thing. But man, my life is really moving right now. And I don't have time for all this pedal paddle stuff. Mark this down. People who don't want to change will always point fingers at those who are changing. Just take that to the bank with you. And you better learn early in life that if you're going to grow for God and do something for God, you're going to pay the price for it, and that's part of the deal. But boy, when God changes his name from Abram to Abraham, it represents the day in your life where you break through. The day in your life, brother, that you got it together in your mind, and you understand now that you have begun building through the ministry. You have, you, we have built together. 
We have built together God's will in your life. Through that, God has showed you the plan that He wants you to do. You understand now what God's doing. And through that, God has called you and given you a work. When you do that, my friend, the picture of God's plan comes into sharp focus for you. And that's what's wrong. That's where it's at. That's the number one problem that we have as Christians. If I could solve one problem immediately, and there's no way to do this, I understand it, but I've been in this business long enough now, had enough people under the bridge, so to speak, and I know now exactly if there's one thing that I could just change about everybody right now that would solve every problem we got. If there's one thing that I, if I could do, if there's one slap of my hands, flick of my fingers, one little magic potion I could give you that would just absolutely put it, it would be the fact that if I could bring God's will, God's plan, and God's work into total, complete focus for you right now in this moment. That as you sat here this morning, you'd see and understand why God saved you. Why you were born where you were born. Why God gave you the wife or the husband. Why God gave you the children. Why God gave you the job. Why God put you into this church. And look at yourself in a complete perspective of what God's doing. Get it off yourself. Quit looking at what you got. What you want. Get your eyes off yourself. And focus on, and focus on what God is doing. I had to laugh. I had to laugh at. Uh, I don't. I don't ever hardly listen to. Him. I don't want you to think I, I listen to him all the day long. But if I'm driving some way, I'll listen to whoever's on Fox News. You know, and Rush Limbaugh just happened to be on. And it was the night after Barack Obama had made his great speech there at the convention. And you know, I, these guys must have a staff behind them who, because they don't have time to do it. You know, I guess to you. If, if Rush isn't out playing golf, he's buying cigars someplace. He, he don't have time to do all of this. But he, it, Barack Obama's message, they taped it, and somebody had excerpted his message. And in short excerpt, 138 times, in, in a 40-minute message, Barack Obama said 138 times the word I. 138 times in a 45-minute message, he said the word I, like I did this, I'll do this, I'm here, I'm there, we're here, I'm here, I'm here. And then at the end, he had the audacity to get up and say, this presidency in this election isn't about me, it's about you. <laughs> and everybody went, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Got to get your eyes off yourself. It isn't about you. It isn't about your curriculum, your, your this, your that, your time frame. It's about the time you've got left to serve God. It's about God's plan, God's work, God's will in your life. And if I could do one thing, if I could just wave my magic wand and change one thing about everybody in this church, it would get you to see and understand in perfect focus God's plan, God's work, and God's will for your life. But that won't happen. You know why? Because it happens through a transformation. It happens just like it happened with Abram to Abraham, Jacob to Israel, Saul to Paul. It happens through a process. You know, you've heard me say this before, but it is so true. Everything in this world has some kind of effect on you. 
You go off to college someplace and learn something, what you learn in college will, will, will teach you and maybe inform you. A lot of things you'll learn in college will misinform you. Some things that you go and do, they'll try to conform you. And some places you go, they'll try to reform you. But the Bible doesn't do any of that. The Bible never tries to reform, inform, misinform, conform. The Bible, my friend, does something that everything else in the world can't do. It transforms. It transforms you where God wants you to be. And that, my friend, is a process. It's a process of coming up that thing one little barb at a time. It's a process that when you get stuck, let somebody help you. Your family may be at stake. Your marriage may be at stake. Your, your, the rest of your life of what you do for God may be when you hit that little thing right there that you don't get what you need from the source that God has given you to get it from. Ever think about this expression in the Bible? We use it in life too. Somebody will say something to you and explain something and you'll say, oh yeah, 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 I see it now. They'll say, well, you say, well, I don't, I don't understand. Well, it's like this, 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 and if you see this, and I'm going to do this, and you say, oh, okay, I see it now. You don't see nothing. It's an expression that we use. One time when Jesus was talking to Nicodemus, John 3, 3, he says, except the man be born of the water and of the Spirit, he shall not see the kingdom of God. Well, I got news for you. Romans chapter 14 says you can't see it anyhow because it's spiritual. What's the concept when we use that phrase, I see? You know what that means? To see something is to understand it by a picture that it forms in your mind. When, you, when I explain something to you and you say, oh, I see, you don't see anything. But you see it in here because your mind formed a picture of what I was explaining. You've been over my house. You've seen up there in the upper room where we all meet. You see up there along that wall. A big old chart of the Bible. And that chart of the Bible is my visualization of the Word of God. When you ask me a question about that Bible, when you lay, ask me something on Thursday night, or when you come over one-on-one, in my mind, your question is formed around a picture that I have impregnated in my mind. Why? Because visual, I want to be able to say, I see. Because I see means I understand with a vision in my mind of what you're asking and what I'm explaining. That's what I want for you. When it comes to God's will for your life, I want you to say, I see that. And I want you to have a picture of what that means. When it comes to God's plan in your life, I want you to say, I see. But I want you to visualize what that means in crystal clarity. When it talks about the work of God in your life, I want you to see and understand in perfect focus what that means. You ever notice, you ever notice on television, uh, they have this thing for learning a language, and it's called the Rosetta Stone. Now, that's in, the guy that designed that, as we speak, is down on the beach in Florida, living high on the hog for the rest of his life. Now, I don't know if you know this or not. The government uses it. The military uses it. Colleges use it. God knows how many individuals use it. It's one of the most incredible discoveries that anybody ever come up with to teach you a foreign language. But do you know how it works? Do you know how it does? You know what they do? You know what it performs for you? Do you know what makes it so work, workable in your life? I'll tell you why. Because, and it tells you if you pay attention to the commercials. When you put that program in and it brings it up and they give you the word, they give you the picture. 
of what that word means. You learn the language better when you see the picture of what the word says. They know what they tell you? They tell you right on the print. This program is wired the way your it, it, it wired the way your mind thinks. And that is absolutely true. So when you want to learn a language, they give you the word and they give you the picture. And by association, you learn the word quicker by identifying it with the picture you have in your mind. And every time you use that word, the first thing will come through your mind is not the enunciation of the word, but the picture that goes along with it. Now that's how I approach the Bible. How come he's rich and I'm not? That's how I approach the Bible. The Bible to me is a picture book. Because when God wrote the Bible, did you ever notice, you ever buy a, a, buy a Bible book for your kids? And you know those big things and a big print about that big? And they're on stories of the Bible. Have you ever noticed how they work? You'll open up and it'll talk about the story of Adam and Eve. And you'll read about a page or a page and a half, maybe two pages. And then you'll turn the page and there'll be a big visual picture of Adam and Eve in the garden. Then you'll come to Noah and the ark. And you'll read about Noah. And then you'll turn a couple of pages and there'll be a big picture of Noah and the ark. You know why? Because kids need a visualization of what they're reading. Now, when God, and, and may I go one step further? Jesus said, except you come to me as a little child, you have no part of me. You see, we like to think the Bible is a scholarly book. We like to think you need to have a Ph.D. or a doctor's degree. You need, we, need to talk, we like to talk about eschatology and theology and, and, and hemorrhoid nudics. We need like to talk about all the great, great things, uh, all the great things that the great theologians talk about. God said this book was written to children. That's why... When you read through a couple of pages, do you know what he gives you? He gives you a type, a picture of Adam and Eve, a picture of Enoch, a picture of Noah, a picture of Abraham, what we're talking about today. Those pictures are laid out through your Bible just like any child's book you buy on the Word of God. You know why? Because we're children. We're children. And that's the way he does it. And I do the same with the Bible. That's how I learn the Bible. That's how I teach the Bible. And the significance is in your life when God changes your name, typified by Abraham, is a point in your life where you say to yourself, I'm not going back. There'll be nobody that pull me off my task. There'll be no promotion at work. I won't get out of balance. I, I, I realize the vision. I realize the job. I realize the, the will, the plan. I realize now that, that, you know what, there's something that God has for me. I see it. I'm not going to get in 48 ball leagues all week so I can't go to Bible study. I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to get in all these things going on out here that takes away my time from the Word of God. I'm going to realize that those things are fine, but everything has to be balanced. But you know what? I am not losing focus of what God's will, God's plan, and God's work is for me in my life. That's when God changes your name. That's where Abraham came to. He came to the point where he looked at the Ur of Chaldees and all that he had, all that he brought out, all that he did, all that he brought with him. And he said, you know what? That stuff looks really good, but it just got me 13 years out of fellowship with God. I'm dumping it. From that point on, God said, that's my man. That's my man. You're no longer Abram. You're Abraham. Now we're going to get some things done. God's will takes hold in your life. Through the principles, through your discipleship, 
through your prayer in Psalms 119, through our Bible studies on Thursday night, through our Sunday morning, and certainly through our one-on-one. God now has, has provided the plan, the vision. You now see the whole concept of God. You realize and understand how that the, the, this, the ministry works around here. At the, that this, this, this work here, it all passed. You see it, you understand it, and you realize that God will only enact a work in your life through the work that we're doing here. Just playing. Just playing. It's just that simple. You see in my life the will of God, the plan of God, and the vision of God, and the work of God, and I lay out that vision as best I can. God gets a hold of your heart as you put God's will in your life, God's plan in your life, and you understand what's going on around here, the work. And you say, you know what, I want to be part of that work. Just like Timothy said to Paul, I want to be part of your work. Just like Titus said to Paul, I want to be part of your work. Just like Barnabas said, I want to be part of your work. Just like John Mark said, I want to be part of your work. And they learned through the structure that God gave them. you got people out there today that will tell you, you don't have to go to church. You can study your Bible at home. And you know what? That's true. But if you want the work of God in your life and you want to be used to God, you got to get in the structure. But you know what a lot of people do? They don't want that structure. They want their own structure. And I guarantee you, if you took their life and looked it back, everything in their life was about them. Spoiled, rotten, had everything they want, and just got everything they ever wanted, and just did whatever they wanted to do, and no accountability in their life. So now they come into a church where there's accountability. Oh, it can't be my problem. It has to be the church's problem. That's the way it works. It's always worked that way. Doesn't matter. You know what this church is? It's a clearinghouse. It really is. I hate to say it that way. I like to make it more spiritual than that, but that's all it is. It's got two doors in, one in and one out. Ever notice that? We've got to put another set of doors in, Steve. We only got one set over there. That won't work. Well, I guess they could use the same door. They could get out the same way. We could push the exit in the back. Because that goes up into a big old closet, doesn't it? Yeah, they, they think they were right at home in there. Dark, damp, and dusty. You know what this is? It's a clearinghouse. It's for people to come in and God gives you a chance to look inside your life and say, I'm tired of the games I'm playing. I'm tired of the way I am. I'm saved. I've been years and years without God using me. And I want to change. Here's the place to change. Or you come in and say, whoops, that's not for me. It's a clearinghouse. It's a strainer. It's something that filters out and you find out very quickly. Hey, this is what I'm looking for. Or no, thank you. But that's what it is. What a church should be. Exactly what it is. I work this work at Old Paths. You see and understand more clearly as you put God's plan through the times we spend together. And you see that God's work has for you. And we do the work together just like Paul and Timothy. And then God brings you to the point, some point, where that you develop that and you get your own vision. Proverbs chapter 29 verse 18 is a great, great passage. When you get God's will in your life, that's the spiritual aspect of it. When you get God's plan in your life, that's the concept of it. And then you get God's job you're doing in your life, that's the physical thing you do. When you get those things going for you like Abraham did, then God takes those things and puts those things into crystal clarity. And those three become one. You know, years ago, 
up in Gloucester, Massachusetts. They had a kind of a tricky harbor to get in. They had reefs high and too many ships would bang up and bust up. So what they did was this. And I thought about this years and years later. What they did is they put three big red lights and they were angled in such a way that if you saw three lights, you're off course. You had to maneuver your ship around that those three lights became one light. That you lined up the three lights into one solid light and then followed that light in and that light got you safely in the harbor. If you saw two, you're going to wreck your ship. If you saw three, you're going to scuttle it. But when you maneuver your ship coming into that harbor that was very narrow, and those three lights, by your angling that ship in, brings those three lights into one solid light, you know you're on safe ground, safe harbor. God's will, God's plan, and God's job for your life, when you get all three of them together, shows everything in crystal clarity and gives you the vision. That God wants you to have. You know, not vision, vision. Oh, I hate that word. Vision. I mean, I love that word, but I hate that word. Vision, vision. I'm not talking about you going out there and, you know, and having a couple, you know, uh, drinks before you read your Bible, you know, wine coolers, you know, and sitting out there and say, oh, God, yes, there he is. We were with the place working and those pegboards got those little holes in it. Where'd Mark at? Bothered you, didn't it? You got vertigo, didn't you? I thought Mark was drunk. He's walking around like this. If you look at all those holes, and Steve come over and he says, well, I don't know what we're going to do about this. He says, I told Mark just not to look at it. And he says, and he says, he says, because you know, you look at all those peg bars in the hole, you know, and they're white. And they kind of, and I said, Steve, I said, Steve, I said, Steve, he says, what? I said, don't take down the peg board. Why? I said, I see the face of Jesus in that. <laughs> I'm not talking about that kind of vision. I'm talking about getting God's vision of what he's doing. Not your own. We got enough of our own stuff in our lives. We need to get the vision that God has. Get the same vision he's got. Be a good steward of it. Like I said, my job is to have God's will, God's work, God's plan, and God's vision in my life for this church. In my own life first. Then lay it out, that vision, and see who else will grasp that concept and said, you know what? I want to work the work with you. And let God mold you through that process into his image, through a transformation. You know what Paul said in Galatians? I love this. Now, the church at Galatia had some problems. They were a young church. He had won them to Christ. He had started this church on one of his missionary journeys. And now they're having some issues. And he says this in Galatians chapter 4, verse 19. I think it's great. He says, my little children. See, they were his. They were his. My little children. He took personal responsibility for them. My little children. Now, I know somebody's spirits out there saying, well, they were God's children. Yeah, I know that. Yeah, they were God's children. But Paul, he didn't have the benefit of your great knowledge, so he thought they were his. My little children, of whom I travail in birth. You see, he, he gave them spiritual birth. He, he won them to Christ. This church was, was his church, his work. This is what he did. He birthed this church, and he turned it over to these people. And he says, I travail in birth again until Christ be formed in you. You see, there's a difference, my friend, in Christ in you as salvation than Christ formed in you. Most of you are saved here this morning and Christ is in you, but the question is, how many of you have Christ formed in you? You know what that means? That means you've transformed yourself into the image of Christ. That means that you, you think like he thinks. You understand his plan, his will, his, his work. 
the vision is understanding the, and a realization of who, not only who God is, but what God is in your life. Understanding why He called you, what He saw in you, when He called you, the time period you were born into, why He has you now, defining God's program in your life, why you're here, why didn't God put you someplace else, why did God bring you here? Some of you people act like you got here because you just found your own way here. Is there actually anybody in your right mind today that if you even got an inkling of wanting to do what's right, you just think you just found your way here on your own? This church is a clearinghouse. God brought you here to find out if you really want to do the plan, the will, and the work or not. That's all it is. That's all it is. And if you don't like this one, you can find a bunch of them out there where you'll be happy. But that's all it is. It's all it is. I told you Paul said in Romans chapter 4 verse 17 last week. He says, he said even God who quickeneth the dead and calleth those things which be not as though they were. Understanding why he calls you. When he calls you. Defining the program where he puts you. Understanding the urgency of the hour. Realizing as Psalms 1 said, you have a season. I know you think you're going to live forever. Most of you are young, and there's a real danger to come to being young. You know what it is? You think you're going to live forever. You don't feel the urgency. You don't realize that the Bible says that, that a man bringeth forth his fruit in his season. You don't get apples in January. You don't get peaches in February. You have a season to your fruit bearing, and the problem we all have is there's no urgency in that. Get into that place in your life like Abraham did when God changes your name. You know, the ministry, and you boys will learn this as you grow and, and in time, you know, take part of this work. And, uh, and, and God's done a lot of things. God's done a lot of good things. And I, in my own mind, as I look at it, you know, and I, I think of it, I, I look at, you know, that we're probably ahead of schedule in my own plan of what I wanted to do. I've got people that, I mean, and you can always use more, people that I feel comfortable with working with people, discipling with people. I've got some young men that can really preach. I've got some, some solid uh, ladies in here that, uh, that will help younger ladies. I've I got a lot of good things going. But, in, 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 you know, in time, you know, you're going to learn that a church needs to form itself up as the individuals form itself up. I told you about this year being the year of the Bible. And obviously it, it has been because it's been a defining factor for a lot of people when push really come to shove, see? But that's the way it always is. And this church is growing, it's maturing, I'm happy with it, but I understand that, that, that because we're a young church, and there's not a lot of men and women that have been that are really plugged into the Bible in a level that they will get to in time. I, I think the next thing this church needs to learn to do, and it ain't going to happen tomorrow, but it'll come in time. This church has a lot of good things, a lot of good people in it. But the thing this church needs to learn, but it hasn't learned yet, and I'm not chiding you for it because I don't think you're where you need. You could learn it yet. Maybe I'm wrong, but I don't think so. But what this church hasn't learned to do yet, it hasn't learned to stand together as a church. It hasn't learned to stand together as a church. And that comes with time. I, I, I don't know how you, you make that happen quicker. Uh, it happens that men and women grow up and they see and understand what they really have here. And I don't mean because of me. I mean because of that book. 
But they, they don't realize what they have, so therefore they don't realize how the devil wants to attack it and how precious they have to protect it. When we put our first deacons in, remember what I told you guys? I am almost embarrassed to tell you this. When we put our first deacons in, I had a little meeting with you and your wives, you know, and the first thing I told you, that your job, number one job, is to protect the, the ministry and the doctrine of this church. And you know what? It, it sounded good, and I walked out of here that day. I thought to myself, wow, I wonder how many of them will get it. Not many, very many did. But that's where we're at. As, as God begins to bring men in and women in, and the other ones begin to filter out, and pretty soon, in another five years, we have a solid core of not just 100 people that are 150 people, you know, that, that are really uh, just half and half, but we got a base of 150 people, the men now that have been with me, what, 10, 15 years, and you fully understand what I'm doing here, and where you fit in, and your wives understand it, and you realize that, that what we have here has to be protected, that you know what, it's a, I, sometimes I feel like I'm a, I'm a one-man guard at a prison with 10,000 people inmates in it. Nobody's watching the rear gates. Oh, you got plenty of things going on in your life and we're doing a lot of good things. But you haven't come to the place yet where you understand the urgency of what we have. And that just comes in time. Comes in time. You're going to learn that the ministry is a bittersweet thing. There's a lot of things you've got to put up with and a lot of deal with, a lot of things that go on that you never see, you never hear about, you never understand. And it's a thing where, you know, it's, it's just the way that it is. But, you know, the thing that's going to keep you from getting discouraged at some point in your life, if you ever pastor a church, and this is where most pastors fail. Most pastors fail because the fact all they do is focus on the problems, and in most cases, they don't have anything good going for them. I never focus on the issues that are on the downside. You know why? They're always going to be there. I mean, I'm no, I'm no novice to this. I've been in this almost 36 years. I, I know that there isn't a day, a, a week, somebody isn't going to get their node better than a joint. Somebody isn't going to have a problem with something that you do or I do or the church does. That's just where it is. And if you spend your life focusing on those kind of things when God has got what? 30 or 40 or 50 people that are dedicated to learning the Bible and you sacrifice them because you're focusing on this? I'm telling you. You know why the Bible says that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them that are called according to His purpose? You know why in your life and my life there's never really anything bad that happens? Even though there appears to be things out there that will scare the fire out of you? Because you don't have the concept and the vision of what God is doing. I mean, when you read through the Bible, and I teach some of you young people the Bible, and I, I think, you know, you get the idea that, that throughout the early part of the Bible, you know, God's running behind the devil trying to catch up because the devil just threw a monkey wrench in his plans, so God's got to fix the hole in the dike, you know. No. You know why God just let, somebody asked me the other day, why does the devil, God just let the devil go on and 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 go on? And the answer to that is because the devil doesn't mean anything to God. I mean, you ever look at this thing? Genesis 1, 1, 1, 2, devil met a, put, a, put a dent in the side of it. Down there, Adam and Eve put a, put a dent in the side of it. God starts out his plan, the devil's moving every opposition to do. Finally, we get over there, and we got Noah in Genesis chapter 6, and now the Bible says the devil, his plan has just succeeded. His plan is just incredible. His plan is just 
thwarted the plan of God. Here it is. God's only got eight people left on the whole planet that love him. We're not even sure about one of those. And, 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 and all the world, 4.5 billion people now is against God and wickedness runs the whole world. Boy, the devil got up on it. God, why did you let that happen? God said, let what happen? Watch this. Rain, 40 days and 15 minutes, everybody was dead. See, when you and I learn not to worry about the things in life, just like God doesn't worry about what the devil does, you understand the great concept that all things work together for good. If you're saved and you're right with God and you're where God wants you to be, the devil couldn't do nothing to you if his life depended on it. And when he got God's plan, look, like it was all messed up. God just said, you want to see something? Watch this. Rain! Look at those sons of God. Yeah, look at them dog paddling down there trying to stay, stay afloat. Fifteen minutes after the rain started, everybody was dead except the people in the ark. You know why? Because it didn't mean nothing to God. God just looked at that and said, watch this. And it's over. It's over. Don't ever lose your focus off the people who want to do what's right when get focused on the people who don't want to do what's right. And that's a big thing for many young preachers. Now we're talking about Abraham here, and Abraham finally gets the vision. I showed you how back there that he talks about it. Abraham was the guy that, uh, that he, uh, he, he finally figured it out, and God changed his name. He told you over there in Romans chapter 4 that Abraham, even God, he got to the place with God that even God, the Bible says, how can two walk together except they be agreed? Abraham got to the place like God where he says over there that God, who calleth those things to be not as though they are. Now, at some point, you're going to get to that point in your life. I think some of you will. I think some of you are getting there now. And uh, I'll, I'm going to leave you with this, and then we're going to go. But this is going to be kind of a, just a quick synopsis of this thing. That when you get God's plan in working in your life, God's will in your life, the spiritual part, and you understand God's plan in your life, and you get to the point where you get God's work in your life, and you understand the God's vision of what He wants you to do, I'm going to tell you something. This is where God changes your name. God's changing your name signifies you and me stepping out of the natural and starting to live in the supernatural. It's putting aside the old things that tie you down and you've got a whole fresh look at life and now you've got a whole new purpose. The spiritual walk with God of understanding God's plan, God's will, and God's work, and God's vision comes down in five things and Abraham's got them in his life. You know what the first thing is? When you step out of the supernatural, when you move in, or step out of the natural, move into the supernatural, you know what you do? You hear what nobody else can hear. I call it hearing the inaudible. You ever notice in the Bible, the Bible says, He that hath an ear, let him hear uh, what the Spirit says to the churches. You realize the greatest example of that is the disciple to the Last Supper where they're sitting around there and Jesus is saying, One of you is going to betray me and it's the one I give the shop to. And the Bible says they gave the shop and dipped it and gave it to Judas. And every one of the disciples says, Oh, by the way, who was it? They had the same problem you and I have. They're listening, but we're not hearing. You ever hear in the Bible where the Bible talks about ears that are dull of hearing? You ever hear me say that the price of learning is repetition? Acts chapter 8, the greatest example of, a, of an inaction I know. Yeah, here's, here's, where, here's where Philip is out having a revival in Samaria. God calls him and sends him to the backside of the desert. And if you watch the conversation, it goes back between Philip and the Spirit of God. Philip gets the right message at the right time to go to the right place and do the right work because he's got the right concept and he's got God's will in his life. Let me ask you a question. Let me ask you a question. Do you hear what the Spirit of God says in your life? 
You even know, and I love this. I always love when somebody starts to say, well, God told me this, or God showed me this, or the Spirit spoke to me. I'll tell you what, I guarantee you, when somebody starts talking like that, you got somebody that's going to make a big mess in their life. Because I guarantee you, I guarantee you, people today don't understand how to hear the inaudible. What do you hear when God speaks to you? Do you even know how God speaks to you? I mean, if, if, if God is going to talk to you, do you know how he does it? you know how the Spirit talked to Philip? Hearing the inaudible. The next one is, is what we already talked about, and that's seeing the invisible. For that, we want to go to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 27. You don't have to turn to it. Life of Moses. Bible says, Moses, about Moses, by faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured. There it is. See that thing? He forsook Egypt, left the world not fearing the wrath of the king. He's not afraid. He endured. How did he endure? He endured by seeing him who's invisible. You know how you endure in life as a Christian? By seeing things that nobody else can see. By seeing people the way God sees them, not the way you see them. By seeing circumstances the way they really are, not how people want you to think they are. By seeing what nobody else can see. How do you see the world? How do you see your job? How do you see your kids? How do you see yourself? How do you see your life and the plan of God in your life? Have you forsaken Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king? Do you endure through this day in life, every day of your life, by enduring by seeing him who is invisible? The third one is touching the intangible, laying hold on the things of God. You know, you've heard me say it many, many times that your life and my life is about investment. And I... I've learned over the years, I've learned over the years that the bottom line is this. There's only two things worth investing your life into because they're the only two things going to last for all of eternity. One of them is the Word of God and the other one is the souls of men. You see, to touch one's life is to change his direction, but to touch one's soul is to change his eternity. You mold people by touching their souls, not by touching their body. You mold people by, by giving to them what God has given to you. You mold people by not being sterile and not having people around you, but by letting them come into your life and being open and honest and, and giving them what they need, the investment of your life and the life of somebody else, and teaching them how to lay hold on the things of God. The fourth thing, believing the infallible. Believing the infallible. And uh, it's a... I see this one as such. A, I see this on a national scale and on, a, on an individual scale. History bears this out. The success or failure of any nation or country depends on its attitude toward the Word of God. You know, back in about 1960, uh, 1970, they took the Bible and prayer out of the schools. Most of you don't remember that. Some of the older ones do. But it came down to national legislation that you could not read the Bible, you're not going to pray. Hey, when I went to school, they prayed every morning over the loudspeaker. When I went to school, the teachers got up and read out of the Bible every morning, had devotion before you started. Public school. When I went to, we had assemblies at Christmas time and Easter. They invited some preacher in who gave a gospel message based out of those things when I grew up. And right after the Civil War was over, you know, it all went, it all went to pieces. About 1970, 1960, they took the, the Congress, and that's a study in itself why they did that. But they took the Bible and the prayer out of the schools. When they took the Bible and the prayer out of the schools, they replaced it with sex, condoms, drugs, total collapse of discipline, mass murder, police in the hallways, and a weapons checked at all the doors. Good job. Good job. Good job. Hey, you know what? That's our country today. Hey, you know what? You can take that on a grand scale and put it right down into an individual scale. That's what happens in your life and my life when the Word of God goes out the door. Same thing. 
It just happens on a national scale. To them, it happens when you quit believing the Word of God. 1 Thessalonians 2.13. For when you, we thank God also without ceasing. For because when you received the Word of God, which you heard of us, you received it not as the Word of men, but as it is in truth, the Word of God, which effectually worketh also in you that believe. It doesn't work in you if you don't believe it. Then the last thing. See, we got hearing the inaudible, seeing the invisible, touching the intangible, believing the infallible. You know what that all leads to? Doing the impossible. Let me ask you a question. This is a great question. What have you done for God this week that an unsaved man couldn't have done? What did you do for God this week that an un- what did you do for God this week that an unsaved atheist couldn't have accomplished? What did God use you to do to this week that was absolutely impossible other than God doing it for you? Supernatural lifestyle. These things will automatically separate you from the natural to the supernatural. You know, when I was 14 years old, I had just started junior high. And I'll never forget. The coach put a thing up on, the, on all those things for basketball tryouts. And I was 14 years old. And all the guys were signing up for basketball. You know? So I put my name on the list. Tryout started Monday morning. I had me a, when I bought, got my mom to buy me a new pair of trunks and a, and a basketball-looking shirt, you know, and, and uh, had my own basketball. And I was out there, you're going to love this, Josh. And I'm out there, you know, and, uh, you know, and so we get, the tr- we get to the thing, and all the guys are down there shooting, and I'm, and I'm, I'm dribbling around, and I'm, I'm hot-dogging everything, you know. And, I'm, and this, coach, this coach was a typical back-in-the-60s coach, 50s. 60s. And, you know, he used to stand on there, you know, I mean, just shortcut haircut, you know, and just looked like he just come out of Paris Island, you know. And he's sitting over there, you know, whistle hanging out of his mouth, and, you know, <clears throat> he says, and he's just watching the whole thing. And I'm thinking to myself, well, he's seeing me. He's seeing my moves, man. And I'm dogging around over here, you know, and around over here, you know. I never shot the ball because I couldn't hit anything. I just thought I'd show him my dribble dazzle, you know. And finally, he's standing around there, and he says, blows the whistle. He blows the whistle. He says, fire him up! And we lined up. He says, Alexander, come here. I'm thinking, oh, 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 he saw my move, man. Must have been 60 guys there. Called me up front to everybody. Stand in front. You know, they did this back in them days. Now they'd have to take you to a therapist, you know. <laughs> Took the whistle out of his mouth, and he says, Alexander, let me ask you a question. I said, yeah, coach. I thought he wanted me to pick out some guys on the team, you know. <laughs> he said, in front of everybody. He said, don't you ever get tired of just being a jerk? And I thought to myself, and I looked at him and I said, yeah, I do, coach. That was the end of my basketball career. <laughs> I don't remember that coach's name. But that was one of the greatest reality checks that anybody ever gave me in my life. To this day, I still ask myself that question in one form or another. That coach, who's probably long dead by now, has no idea how he helped me that day. Because he forced me to deal with who I really was in front of everybody. And I had to come to the reality, yeah, I am a jerk. And I didn't like being a jerk. 
from that point on in my, uh, my young life, I never forgot what he told me. Let me ask you a question, an honest question. Let me ask you a question. Every saved man and woman in this room this morning hearing my voice, let me ask you a question. You're crying about it. It was okay. I'm, I didn't, he called me a jerk. Don't, it's all right. I know you're feeling sorry for me. Well, let me tell you what so-and-so called me back here. You want to really cry? Let me ask you a question. Don't you ever get tired of God not using you? I mean, come on. You're saved. The Holy Spirit of God's inside you. Don't you ever get tired of God not using you? Don't you ever just want God to put you in some position where you could be used? Don't you get tired of the confusion in your life? The deep, you know, the years roll on, the games continue, the problems compound, you know, your kids get older, 14, 15, and 16, and you can't hide it anymore. I mean, you do remember what I said when we were doing child training classes, you know, parent come to me one time and said, my kids are really pro causing problems in my home, preacher, I don't know what to do. I said, well, this first thing we got to do is get it straight. Kids don't cause problems in the home. Kids just reveal the problems that are already there. It's just getting to the point now you can't hide it no more. You can sit on it for a while. You know, some of God's people remind me of a story I read a while back about a man who died in poverty in his home. Nobody had seen him for three or four weeks. He lived in an old ramshackle place. And when they finally kicked down the door, the sheriffs went in and they found that he had actually died and they think he starved to death. Nothing to eat in the house. House was a shambles. When they started to tear down the house, you know what they found? <clears throat> they found that he had rat holed $2 million in the walls of the house. He had $2 million around in his house, and yet he died in poverty in a wrecked down place, and he starved to death. Translation, so many are God's people today. You're sitting on a million dollars, and yet you refuse to let it change your life, and you're going to die in the swallow and the poverty of this old world, spiritually bankrupt. At 14 years of age, my reality check, I think about it every day. You know what? That, that grade school, or was it grade school elementary, they tore it down last year. It was built in 1904. Every time I used to go home and stay with my mom or visit my mom, she lives right across the street from me. I used to walk around it, go where I used to play, and I never forgot a day in my life. In fact, when they tore it down, my sister went there, and, and all the people that went to school there, thousands, we all, she bought me a brick, you know, sent it to me in the mail. I never want to forget that day where that coach had the courage and the guts to ask me probably one of the single greatest questions anybody ever asked me if I wasn't tired of being a jerk. You see, my reality, everybody knew I was a jerk except me. And the reality is, Everybody sees the problems. You can't hide problems in your life. You just can't. You can't hide your indifference. You're bubbly for a long time and I love God, and then, you know, you come to the place where you miss a Sunday and somebody said, we missed you. Yeah, I wasn't there. Ooh. 
You can't hide from it. The reality is we are what we are. Almost a week doesn't go by that I don't sit down with some family where, and not in, not in our church. I'm getting them from all over the place. Oh, and let me say this while I'm thinking about it. Tuesday night at 6 o'clock, I have probably the most sensitive counseling scenario that I could ever find myself in. And God has given us an opportunity to really make an impact in a family's life. They lost their daughter in a tragic car wreck. They're not getting any help from anywhere, and now the, they're, 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 all the doubts and the fears, and their boy who comes to our church has said, Mom, you need to come and talk to my pastor. He'll help you. He helped me. I got a chance for the whole family coming over Tuesday night to sit down and let me walk them through the Bible, help them deal with it. And I can't do that by myself. This is what I'm talking about. I need your help. I don't need you there, but I need you on your knees at 6 o'clock Tuesday night, remembering me in prayer. Because this is an incredible opportunity. And it's something that I, I take very seriously, and it's a situation that's going to, the outcome is, is going to be eternal. But you know what? There almost isn't a week goes by that I don't sit down with somebody from some other church or somebody sends them over to me, that their daughter's pregnant, the boy got somebody pregnant. The wife and the husband are splitting up. Some kind of issue that, that I look at it when I hear the scenario and I hear the situation and I hear it going on. I, I think to myself, you know what? This situation never had to get to where it's at today. It never did. You had a pastor. You had a church. You had a structure. And if you didn't have a pastor in a church that would do it, then you get out and find somewhere you can. Get the help that you need before the problem gets so climatic and so out of control that you cannot regain control of it. And that's the situation we find ourselves in today. And I'm telling you, this whole thing is about you getting to the next level in your life. This whole thing is you, if you're saved, understanding what God wants to do in your life, submitting yourself to it, and then systematically moving up that little, that, little, that little circle, getting over every little obstacle, moving up till you come to the point where God's plan in your, God's will in your life, God's plan in your life, and God's work in your life. Through this work here, through our one-on-one -on -one together in the Bible, through the things that we do, God shows you through this work, my work, our work, a work that you do for me, and together God molds that thing into focus that you say, you know what? I understand now. I see what the ministry is. I see how to deal with people. I see what God wants me to do. And you know what, Bob? I ain't ever going back. There ain't nothing in this world that could entice me. There is nothing that's going to take the precedent in my life over learning my Bible and being the man or the woman God wants me to learn. Be. That's what it takes. When you get to that point in your life, just like Abraham, who was Abram, high father, had everything in the world, Come to the point where he's Abraham, the father of many nations. God changed his name because Abraham had put the process of his life for God to change his life. And that's where we're at. That's where we're at. Every head bowed and every eye closed. Father.